Let's pray. Father, we want to pray that you would meet with us this morning, that you would speak to us through your word. Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, speak to our souls. Change us. We pray for the children as well and the young people, Lord, that you would speak with them, that you'd bless them, that you'd strengthen them. Uh, Lord, that they might have faith and you'd fill them with your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, we are continuing. Oh, there you go. There we go. Put my sign up. Get my money's worth. We are continuing to think about the central part of Jesus' teaching that's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. It, it represents a summary of what Jesus taught about God's kingdom. It's Jesus' teaching, if you like, about it, what it means to live as God's people in the world. And to put it another way, it's Jesus showing us how God designed us to live. This is kind of the manual uh, for what it is that human beings are intended to be like. And we've seen so far as we've been uh, working our way through this series and thinking about it and reading and teaching that it is rooted in a vision of the necessity of grace and humility. What I mean by that is that everything that Jesus teaches is rooted in the understanding that everyone needs God's help and forgiveness. That rather than justifying ourselves and condemning others, Jesus, whenever he's teaching, is always wanting us to ask, what about me? What about me? It's very easy to take ideas and take values and apply them to other people. And yet Jesus is always wanting to say, well, what does that mean for you? Don't worry about them. What does it mean for you? It's also designed to move us past merely rule keeping. Rule keeping cleans up our outsides. It tells us how we should behave so that we look good. I've actually... uh, just bought a new book uh, that I'm enjoying immensely. I bought a second copy for my brother for his birthday. It's called The Debrett's Guide on How to Be a Modern Gentleman. It teaches you how you should wear your tie, where you should wear waistcoats, how you should button up the waistcoats, uh, what you need to know about etiquette. And I'm enjoying it immensely. I have this kind of fantasy of myself as a squire. And... uh, I love it. I love it. Partly, uh, I think there's a bit of me that's missing being in the city and getting to wear suits. Right? It's nice that I can wear shorts every day, but there's a bit of me that misses looking good. And uh, that book has helped me to recover something of what that means. It helps you look really good. What it does nothing to do, it has no way of changing who I actually am. It just still gives me rules for how I can look better to other people. So what it's basically saying is if you wear your suit in this way, if you wear your tie in this way, if you speak in this way, then people will like you and they will think you're good and they will think you are behaving appropriately. But it does nothing to change whether I am in fact a nice person, whether I am in fact a person who's like Jesus. So Jesus wants to move past that kind of rule-keeping mentality towards what I call a soul-healing mentality. That he wants us to look for the transformation of our characters and natures rather than our external people. And then having set this foundation, Jesus turns to address the big things that break our relationships with each other and with God. 
That's what sin really is. Sin is a word that's out of fashion. It's become distorted. Some people, for some people it sounds like breaking rules. And as I explained, that's not helpful. And for other people it sounds like something that is uh, intriguing and perhaps a little bit exciting. Neither of those things is a good picture of it. Sin is really the human ability to mess up the world. The human tendency to mess up the world and particularly to break our relationships. So to break our relationships with each other and to break our relationship with God. So for example, the last week we saw how Jesus addressed the problem of anger. He said actually the problem with the world, you have this rule don't murder. The the rule is not really about not killing each other. I mean please don't kill each other but if you thought that was what the rule was about... That's not really what it's about. What it's really about is what's inside you. All the things that cause you to kill each other. Anger and hatred and scorn. And he said, actually, what you're intended to be like is a people of reconciliation and dignity and peace. That was last week. So you can see how he's picking on something that breaks relationships through violence and anger. This week... We're looking at how, what he says about the way we break our relationships through a distorted understanding of sex and desire. A distorted understanding of how men and women, uh, and occasionally men and men and women and women, relate to each other. That, that distortion of those relationships that causes us to break those relationships and to become distant from one another and distant from God. So here's this week's lunchtime summary. I'll put it on the screen. When we use other people to gratify ourselves, we harm ourselves and others. Instead, we should give ourselves to one another in commitment and love. When we use other people to gratify ourselves, we harm ourselves and others. Instead, we should give ourselves to one another in commitment and love. We use other people to gratify ourselves, we harm ourselves and others. Instead, we should give ourselves to one another in commitment and love. There you go. So as with last week, we're going to read from several bits of the Bible. I've included some readings from the Old Testament, the writings that came before Jesus, to show that his vision for humanity is rooted in our understanding of who God really is. I've also included some later writings that were given to Jesus' early followers, reflecting on what this means in practice. Uh, So Helen, can you come and help me read this? Give my voice a bit of a break. So Helen's going to be reading from Genesis 1, uh, verse 26 to 27, and 2, verses 20 to 25. It'd be easier for me if you read what was on there. It's a slightly updated English. You don't necessarily need to find this. We're not going to be spending a lot of time there. There you go. Then God said, let us make mankind mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Okay, and then uh, we're going to skip ahead to Genesis 2, verse 20 to 25. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs 
and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone from my bones, and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Excellent. Thanks, uh, Helen. I'm going to come back to those stories in a minute. This is what Jesus teaches. So I'm now reading from Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. If you uh, want to find it, then that's where we're going to be staying for a little bit after this. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And then finally, I'm going to read from Ephesians 5. Don't worry about turning to this. This is, this is Paul, uh, Jesus' earliest interpreter, one of them, bringing together what Jesus taught and explaining how that vision from Genesis 2 and 1 fits together with what Jesus taught and then applying it to the church. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit, to your, to you, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, is Christ the head of the church, his body of which he's the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by, washing, by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Amen, this is the word of God. Jesus is, is developing his teaching based on an ancient view of relationships. It's quite different from the way that we view them in the contemporary West. When I am talking about relationships here, I'm not necessarily talking about romantic relationships. I'm actually talking about the way that men and women relate to one another. So actually, what we have to say here has relevance for everybody, whether you are married or not. There is a deep principle here that is not just about how we behave in marriage, but it's really about how we relate to one another. I, I want to explain uh, Jesus' vision, the ancient vision of human relationships, before exploring how using each other to please ourselves actually breaks that vision and breaks our relationships. 
Again, if there's something that I'm saying that you feel is not relevant for you at the moment, then listen out for the deep principles. Because Jesus has something to say to everyone, whatever stage of life we're at and whatever relationship status we're in at the moment. So in the, in the biblical view of human relationships, human beings are created as equals. They're made for one another and made for God in God's image. That is part of the point of those early Genesis stories. Whatever uh, view you take, and there's a range of views, and I'm not commenting on them at the moment, I think it's okay for Christians to disagree about uh, how one interprets Genesis 1 and 2 in relation to history and biology and science and all of that. They're not primarily about that. That's not why they're there in the Bible. They're not primarily there to replace the need for doing scientific research. They're there to teach us about humanity and how we are to relate to one another. They're what, um, what's called archetypes. If you uh, don't know what that means, it's like you, you draw a picture of something and you say that is the thing to which everything else aspires. That's the thing to which we're working, towards which we're working. This is what it's supposed to be like. That's the point of these stories. So you have this man who's given uh, the name uh, man, and you have this woman who's given the name mother. And so man and mother are pictured, and the way they relate to one another is then used to show how we should relate to one another. That's the point of these stories. And when we explore the way these stories present men and women and human beings generally, they are all equal. They are created equal. They are also different from the world around them. So they're different from the world around them in the sense that they're not there to be used, or dominated, or manipulated. They are together to be those who rule the earth. And then, that's a vision for humanity generally, and then in Genesis 2, that vision becomes applied particularly to marriage and to sex. That vision for the whole of humanity finds its expression in the way that a man and a woman relate to one another. They give themselves to each other and commit to one another and become essentially one person. Hopefully you can begin to see how the vision for everyone, one human race made up of lots of people, becomes expressed particularly in one marriage made up of two people who are given to one another, equal together and indistinguishable from one another in their interests, in their commitment, in their physical union. Sex and marriage, in this view, are not simply designed to give pleasure to the people involved. They're not really about pleasure. They are pleasurable, but they are not about pleasure. They're about an expression of commitment to love one another exclusively, and out of that love to fill the earth with people who bear the glory of God. When we make that commitment to each other, we're pledging that we will put the other person first. That we will seek their good and their happiness ahead of our own. That's what love means in the Bible. The Bible doesn't really know anything about falling in love. I mean, if you read the stories now, 
it is clear that there are people who fall in love. They are described as being very attractive at first sight. They, their hearts go out to one another. It's clear that that's what's going on. But that's not the way the word love is used in the Bible. That's the reason why in Christian marriage, the question that's put to the two people getting married is not do you love one another. It's will you love one another. Are you willing to commit yourself to seeking the good of this other person wholly and completely ahead of your own? And are they willing to do it for you? That's what love is. A Christian understanding of love is a radical commitment to the good of other people, even at our own cost. St. John tells us in one of his uh, letters, this is how we know what love is. In other words, he says, you know, if you, if you uh, get into reading the New Testament, you'll find that this happens. Paul is very, very, very kind of uh, argument, 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 conclusion. So when Paul comes to describe love, he gives like 13 different adjectives for it. Love is... Uh, how do we, how do we, uh, love is patient, love is kind, love does not seek its own. He goes through all these different things. Paul is a word guy. St. John is a picture guy. He's, he drives uh, biblical scholars, all of whom are word guys, mad, right, trying to interpret 1 John. Because it's, it's this sort of kind of heightened poetry. And in the end, you find that John sort of runs out of words. He's not, as, he's not as, as verbal as Paul. So he says, look, I, I can't describe to you what love is like, so let me describe it to you in this way. You know Jesus, that's it. What you find is that St. John's letters are like this, and Paul's letters go on for pages and pages and pages. John's done in five pages. Because in the end, he's like, Jesus? Yeah, that. Do you want to know what you should do? That. This is how we know what love is. That the Son of God came and died for us. Radical commitment to the good of others, even at our own cost. This is a, a, a description of humanity... But it's also a description of marriage and sex. We commit ourselves to serving one another. Notice how Paul, again in the longest of the readings, he's a word guy, says submit to one another. That's at the heart of what his vision is for marriage. Mutual submission. It's actually at the heart of what his vision is for the church. He goes on to apply it to the church. Mutual submission. Committing to serve our partner. It's simply the logical conclusion of the way we see everyone and are determined to show love to all people. Ultimately, this approach of seeking others' good and them seeking ours is actually the path of fulfilment. There's a paradox here, which is that we think that the more we hold on to and seek our own good, the happier we will be. And actually the reverse is true. The more we commit to another and seek their good, the happier and fulfilled we will be. Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, who's a Russian uh, Orthodox priest and writer, uh, he's dead now sadly, uh, put it this way in one of his books. He said, the thing is, we think that if we can grab as much as we can, then we have more. So if I take an apple, we think, fantastic, I've got an apple. He says, but look down and you will see that you've lost a hand. 
When we take and hold on to, we actually lose more than we gain. When we give ourselves to one another, we gain far more. Serving and pledging and committing to one another liberates us from selfishness and enables us to find joy in opening ourselves up to another unselfishly and having them care for us. Interestingly, I was reading the Sunday Times last week, and this is the way psychology and marriage counselling is starting to think. I always find this hilarious. There is a feature in the Sunday Times with someone who's discovered a brand new insight that is literally what's been in the Bible for 2,000 years. I mean, literally could not be more word for word what is in the Bible. If you combine together St. Paul in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 7, you will get this book. Right? You could save yourself a fortune. So this is Belinda Luscombe. She's the editor of Time magazine. She's a long-standing author on marriage and relationships. Her latest book was reviewed in the Times last week, and this is what they said. If there is an overall theme to Luscombe's theory of what makes marriage work, it is this. Can we choose this person's desire over our own? I'm like... (laughs) I mean, she's charging, I I think, £15 a copy. (laughs) Or in the phrase of a wise friend of mine, which I stole and pull out for every wedding speech I'm called on to make, marriage should be a competition of kindness. Yes! Yes, absolutely. Welcome to the party. Not just marriage, the whole of human life is is commitment to the good of others, right? This is what the law requires, that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength, and we love our neighbours as ourselves. where, Where does this fit in with what we were talking about earlier? And with Jesus. Well, lust distorts and violates this vision of human relationships and flourishing. That's what lust does. It seems, in contemporary thinking, utterly unrelated. And yet, actually, it's exactly the opposite of giving ourselves in commitment to another person. I I want to define what I mean by lust now, because lust is another one that... um, Another word that's come to mean different things to different people. What I mean by it, and what Jesus means by it, is not noticing that someone else is attractive or beautiful, right? That's just observing reality. There are a number of attractive uh, people in this church. Uh, There are attractive people and unattractive people all over the world. There are attractive views of waterfalls and such all over the world. It is no more lustful to notice that someone else looks good than it is to notice that a tree looks tall or that a waterfall is impressive and loud. Okay, it just is. Right? If we go around condemning ourselves every time we notice someone else is attractive or they've dressed nicely or that they've done their hair nicely, we, be- we live in a-, a weird parallel universe where we end up disgusted with ourselves over something that's not wrong and unable to appreciate the beauty that actually each of us works towards. Also, I want you to notice that I look nice. That's why I made an effort. Right? Okay, and I'm, I'm assuming that's the same for all of us, right? There's a, there's a deep hypocrisy in people who say, who act as if they don't notice that anyone else looks nice, which is that they've washed and dressed nicely and put shoes on, and if they're guys, shaved, and if they're women, seem to have coordinated the colours of their outfits. Right? We want to notice. Why? Because it's good. It makes the world more beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. Nor is it feeling attraction towards somebody. Jesus isn't fe- talking about when we feel attracted towards someone. You can't help that. Right, you just do. It happens. 
people feel attracted towards each other and over time that attraction fades and at times it grows stronger and at times it grows weaker. Uh, one of the major, major problems with modern understandings of marriage is that people mistake attraction for love and then when attraction fades, they think that love has faded. And actually that's a huge mistake. There will be times where even if you are married to someone and very happily married to them, you feel attracted to someone else. Uh, it happens. Again, it's not something you can avoid, it's just part of being human. Lust is going further, however. Lust goes further than feeling attracted to someone. It goes further than noticing they look nice. Lust, when Jesus is using the word, is describing a kind of fantasy life that dwells on the other person, or at least the image of the other person, and manipulates it as a way of generating pleasure for myself without having to give them anything in return. Luther had this phrase that uh, has become a bit hackneyed now, which is that you can't stop birds flying over your head, but you don't have to let them make nests. Well, it's quite an attractive phrase. Again, uh, uh, a modern uh, Russian Orthodox priest said, there's nothing I can do to stop aeroplanes flying over my house, but I can avoid building them a runway to land on. And that using that picture of our minds of taking something we experience and building it up and manipulating it and using it so it becomes something that gives pleasure to us. Indulging it, dwelling in it, relishing it, without giving anything in return to them. You might say, well, Phil, what does it matter? If I don't actually, you know, if I look but I don't touch, why does it matter? Well, let's just think. First of all, it matters because of the way that your heart and your attitude, my heart and my attitude, has changed towards that person. Remember what we said in Genesis? We were created to relate to each other as equals. Together, both created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Let us make humanity in our image. Together, bearing the image of God. Lust, that fantasy life, makes the other person into less than that. They become less than human. They are now an object to be used by me. I don't have to relate to them. I don't have to do anything with them. I don't have to care for them. They are simply being used to give me pleasure in the same way that a chair is used to sit down. My attitude towards them has already become broken and our relationship is already now less than it was before. There's no thought in lust for the good of the other person in our fantasy. They are an object we use to please ourselves. Even if we imagine ourselves giving them something, we, we do so only insofar as it gives us pleasure. In other words, they are not an equal to be cherished and served, honoured and nurtured, but have become instead an object to be used. We don't serve and honour them, they are used to serve and honour us. A fantasy of someone ultimately takes from them rather than giving to them. We come to treat them simply as an instrument to satisfy ourselves. We're using them. It breaks that relationship. It begins to break that relationship in our hearts. 
Second, it betrays our partner, right? So this is one that's particularly uh, relevant for those who are married. It betrays our partner because it withdraws from them what we've promised. You might say, well, I looked, I didn't touch. But you didn't promise in marriage and in the contract, the, the pledge that's given in sexual union, is not simply that you won't touch someone else. It's a pledge to give myself to someone else. To them. I promise to seek your good. I promise to love you. If I'm married to you. To put you first. To care for you. When we marry someone, when we begin a sexual relationship with them, we give ourselves to them. There are promises made, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit, that we're giving ourselves to serve and love and nurture them. When we begin to withdraw from our spouse, to give ourselves in our minds or souls to another, we begin to break that covenant. We begin to break it. You see this with football players. I'm not talking about sex now with football players. I'm talking about... You will, if you're someone who follows football, you will occasionally see players who really want to be playing for another team. Now they're still turning up and they're playing for their team. They're still there on the pitch. They haven't been unfaithful, but you can see that their heart isn't in it. They're going through the motions. They might be playing at 80%. But they've already withdrawn from that relationship. When we begin to withdraw from our spouse, to give ourselves in our mind or souls to another, we begin to break that covenant. Now, it hasn't gone as far as touch. But it started to be broken in our hearts and our minds. We, we may observe its form, but we withdraw our heart and spirit and will. We may not give our body to another, but we've begun to seek our own satisfaction and pleasure ahead of our spouses. This is why Jesus identifies this problem as the root of adultery, right? You, hopefully you can begin to see that. That every time someone is actually physically unfaithful to their spouse, it's because sometime in the past, this process of withdrawing ourselves from our spouse has already begun. This process of using other people to gratify ourselves has already begun. This is the root of it. Jesus gives a solution to this problem. As ever, it's grounded in the conviction that all of us need to be set free from seeing and using others in this way. And this can only happen by God working in us. Love and self-control are the result of God working on our lives to change us and make us more like Jesus. First thing we need to do, therefore, is to accept that this is who we are. I'm not just talking about marriage now and adultery. I'm talking about, and lust. I'm talking about now, generally speaking. We actually all use other people in this way. We come to see other people as instruments to be used. For our own pleasure. Selfishness it's called. The first way to solve selfishness is to begin to recognise that we have a problem with being selfish. And ask God to change us. And then we need to work with God to bring this change about. most basic way we do this is to be ruthless and determined. To do two things. Now, forgive me if this sounds obvious, but it's actually really hard to do. The first thing, if you have a problem with something, avoid situations and practices and people that are likely to cause us to behave badly. So I will give you an illustration from my own life. I, have, I now haven't drunk for... I'm 34, take away 18, 16... 
makes 18 years, 18 years, I haven't drunk alcohol. Uh, since I was 16. Uh, because I, part of the reason for that is that I noticed that I have a, a problem. Uh, not that I'm an alcoholic, I, in the sense that I am compelled to drink all the time. But I noticed I have a problem, which is when I start drinking, I don't stop. Uh, I actually now have a prob- that same problem with nibbles and snacks. Uh, but I haven't uh, given up Pringles. But I don't buy them, right? Why don't... Why? Why? Well, I know that there's a problem here. So for a number of years, I didn't go to parties and to bars where people were serving alcohol and going to offer it to me because I knew it would be a problem for me. I knew that I would take the drink and I would, uh, I would begin drinking and then I wouldn't stop drinking. I didn't really do moderation. So I avoided the situation. Even now, I know that there are situations where we have people coming around for dinner and I know that Heather is going to put out a bowl full of olives and a bowl full of sun-dried tomatoes and a bowl full of Pringles and I'm going to eat 90% of them before dinner arrives and feel sick for the rest of the evening. I know it's going to happen. I actually, we have conversations now about whether we even can have nibbles before dinner. Right? Jesus says, if you see a situation that's going to cause you a problem, don't go into that situation. Just don't do it. He uses this extraordinary image. He says, look, if it's your eye, gouge your eye out, for goodness sake. Cut your hand off. You know, he's not talking literally. There's a very funny bit in Blackadder, in the first series of Blackadder, where Edmund gets made Archbishop of Canterbury. I found it on YouTube, but it was such a short clip, it hardly seemed worth showing. And uh, he's riding along with his brother. And uh, he's a complete buffoon, Edmund, but his brother is also just unbearably earnest. And he's riding along with his brother, and his brother, this is me riding. Should have given someone uh, coconut shells. Yeah, and uh, his brother says, my, my Lord Archbishop, and of course he started to ask Edmund questions about the Bible. Um, I understand that I'm to cut off my left hand, oh, sorry, I'm to cut off my right hand if my right hand offends me, but then what if my left hand offends me? With what shall I cut it off? And he says, <laughs> And, and, uh, and Edmund's writing, goes, yes, because yes, it is a tricky one. And because uh, the, 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 the root of the joke is he's misunderstood something that's obviously this extraordinary image that's designed to break us out of complacency and, and make us think, actually, he's really, he really means this. Avoid situations, practices, and people that are likely to cause us a problem, and pursue situations, practices, and people that help us to behave well. You can apply this to anything. If you have a problem with gossip, don't hang around with the person you like to gossip with, at least until you've got it under control. If you have a problem with stealing, don't go to the place where the stuff is you like to steal. If you have a problem with drinking, don't go into bars. Don't buy alcohol. Right? I speak from experience. Over time, the problem diminishes, but you still have to be aware of it. Become aware of when you're likely to have the, the issue. Uh, I know that I'm, I would be most likely to have... Uh, to pick up on the drinking analogy, for example, we, uh, I know that a particularly vulnerable time for me would be late at night. So if, I, if I've had a really, really hard and very stressful time, I'll try not to be around bars and in the pubs late at night because I know that I would have a problem with it. It sounds easy, it's just difficult to do. It sounds obvious, it is, but it's hard to do. But very often we get a fleeting pleasure moment of pleasure from the things we know are wrong or that we were harmless. That's why we do them, right? I'm going to uh, be brutal for a second. All the things that we do, we do because we like doing them. 
We might know that they're bad for us. We might wish we didn't do them, but we do them because we like doing them. No one does anything they don't like doing. Okay, I eat Pringle after 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 Pringle because I really like the salty taste on my tongue. Now I know in my mind that I don't want to be a, a Pringle-eating bloater who is uh, stuffed full of salt and sugar and fat. I know that, but I really do like the taste of Pringles, so I just keep eating them, right? It makes it really hard to change. Ultimately, as St. Augustine observed, we do whatever we love doing and enjoy, and so we carry on doing it. You know, to return to the idea of sexual sin, it's actually really, really hard to stop. Really, really hard to stop. Because it's actually a biological reaction in the brain. People get chemically addicted to pornography. I'm not making that up, you can research it online. Uh, I'll give you one, uh, you go to the Rutland Centre, that's a rehab centre. Chemically addicted because it releases a chemical in the brain. When your brain is thinking about this, it releases, I can't remember what it's called, chemicals in the brain that are addictive. Makes it harder to change the brain's chemistry. Over time your brain changes. That's a biological experience. Spiritually, I would also note that the Bible speaks of uh, sex as an act of giving to oneself, to another. That's actually why it's such a central part of our culture. Because it's, it's the supreme example of giving oneself. And I would say the more you give yourself to somebody, the harder it is to stop doing that. The more you give yourself to anything, the harder it is to stop. Spiritually, I've noticed that. I, I'm interested in the biology of it, that actually it's biologically hard to stop. But it's also spiritually hard to stop as well. Those two things go together. This is why Jesus uses this ruthless imagery of cutting off one's own hand or plucking out an eye. It's absurd, and yet, simultaneously, it's true. We have to be willing to do the hard work of saying no to situations and practices that cause us to stumble in order to find freedom and joy and peace. This holds true for whatever sin or practice we're trying to overcome. I'm going to give three applications and then we're going to sit and just pray. This is an exhaustive list and I'm really sorry if some of this makes people uncomfortable but real life is uncomfortable and it's about time that we addressed it. First, if you want to know how to be free from this stuff I'm going to give two don'ts and then I'm going to give a do. Two don'ts and then I'm going to give a do. The first don't is don't fantasise about people particularly if you're not married to them. Yeah, I'm not, I'm just trying not to look at anybody now. It's really... <laughs> Again, I don't mean that we shouldn't notice people or be aware they're attractive. I mean we should be careful to avoid patterns of thought that go beyond simply noticing someone to imagining them, thinking about them, wondering about them. If you have a, a problem with this and you're in a relationship, in a marriage relationship or in another relationship, try and be honest with your partner. It feels like that's an enormous betrayal, but actually it can be a real general uh, engine for intimacy. Say, actually, I want to be honest with you about this. Because, I don't, because I'm so committed to you that I want you to help me with this. If necessary, stop spending time with that other person. And I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Look at the ceiling. Stop spending time with that other person. Because it's causing you to stumble, Right? 
They're not as important as your spouse. They're not as important as your spouse. Nothing is as important as your spouse. You've committed yourself to love them. So don't spend time with someone who causes your problem. Sounds brutal. But if that other person is unhelpful to your marriage and to your own heart, then they're not as important to you as those things. Second, don't watch pornography. I know this is a very, very nice church. And I know that it's lovely. And I know that we don't talk about these things. But there is more pornography around at this moment in time, more easily accessible than at any other moment in human history, and it is more destructive than it was at any other moment in human history. There are all sorts of consequences of porn. It distorts our view of sex and relationships. It distorts our view of the opposite sex. It prevents us from forming meaningful bonds with other people. It causes us to be less sexually active than we were previously. It, it, it victimises those involved. I mean, it's just an enormous problem. Don't dabble with it. It may seem harmless, but it isn't. It affects our relationships, it affects how we see sex, it affects how we treat other people, and it is addictive. It is medically and biologically addictive. So then my two don'ts. My third is a do. If you're in a relationship with someone, then do invest in that relationship. Do make it a priority. It is more important than work. It is more important than... Uh, even you, fixing your relationship is more important than coming to church for a few weeks. It's more important than uh, being with someone else, being with other friends. Make time for each other. Put their dreams and ambitions, their happiness first. If you are married, even if you've been married for a long time, invest in your sex life, even when you don't feel like it. Invest, and you will. It's important. Now these are all applications that relate specifically to sex and relationships, but Jesus' teaching is a broader challenge as well. Let me ask every single person here or listening, what is the one or two things that are stopping you from becoming who God wants you to be? What is holding you back from doing what he's called you to do? Forget the sex and adultery stuff now. In any area of life, anger, work, church, greed, physical exercise, what is the one or two things that are causing you to not be who God wants you to be? Be ruthless about finding out and then act. When we use other people to gratify ourselves, we harm ourselves and others. Instead, we should give ourselves to one another in commitment and love. I'm just going to take some time to be quiet. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. You might want to just put your hands out in front of you. It's a posture of being open and wanting. It's a, you might want to shut your eyes as well. After this, we're going to sing some songs. And... I'm going to provide chance for people to be prayed for if they want to. You just put up your hand and someone will come and pray with you. You can either pray quietly on your own at the back or we can pray with you wherever you are. But just begin to ask God to come and to open our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray, come Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Lord, show us our own lives. Lord, move past the, the simple centre of the sermon which was the relationship question show us where it is you're working in each one of us show us what it is you're wanting each one of us to do show us where it is you are wanting to change us we pray Holy Spirit you begin that work now 
Open us up. Help us to, t- to leave behind the things that are holding us back. And to press on to what you've called us to be. We pray, come Holy Spirit.